Hello, and welcome to Basic Bible 101. I'm Margie Smith, and I'll be your presenter for today. Today we'll be covering Lesson 3, which is about Adam and Eve. Last week we covered the story of creation in Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2. Today we are going to pick up where we left off with uh, Genesis 2. But before I begin, let me remind you some of the things that we talked about last week. Remember that all the time that God was creating the heavens, the earth, the sun, moon, and stars, the um, vegetation, animals, plants, uh, fish, birds of the air, everything after he created, he said, this is good. Even to the point when he made man, and he said, this is very good. So God was very pleased with all that he had created. At the end of chapter 1, we read that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And then he sat down and rested, and we talked about how important it is to have a day of rest, that God didn't necessarily need to rest because he was tired, but because he wanted a chance to sit back and enjoy all that he'd created. And it's the same with us. We really need a time to stop and reflect on all that God has done and rejoice in, in the gifts that he's given us. Okay, today we're going to begin with chapter 2, as I said. If you have a map uh, that you could look at, we're going to talk a little bit about the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Those of you that have the student workbook will find that in the student workbook. Those of you who are maybe taking this as a class, your uh, discussion group leader should have a copy of a map. If not, you can certainly go to www.basicbible101.com and see if there's one of the maps online. I believe there probably is. Okay, um, after Adam and Eve had gotten used to the garden and had spent some time checking out all that God had given them, and Adam had spent some time naming the animals, and basically the beginning of chapter 2, uh, for quite a while there is kind of a recap of all that God had done. Chapter 2 verse 7 uh, it talks about how God made man from the earth how he specifically picked up a little bit of dust and breathed life into it. Verses 8 through 14 describe a little bit about the garden where it was located and if you look on your map you will see them that in Mesopotamia there's sort of a lush area between two rivers the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers and we think that that is where the Garden of Eden was located however no one knows for sure because of course it's been hidden since the time that Adam and Eve were cast out of it but up until this time and it could just be that the Bible writers were referring to a very lush plain and they thought of the Tigris and Euphrates and, and thought, okay, it would be like that. So although we don't know for sure where the Garden of Eden was, we do know that it was a beautiful place. There was plenty of water and it was a very temperate place, tropical environment. Okay, then in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, let's read what happens. And if you have your Bible with you, you can follow along with me. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. All right, so what is this tree in the center of the garden that's the the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Whatever it is, it is something that God does not want Adam to have anything to do with. 
God's specific instruction to Adam didn't seem too difficult, really, does it? And yet, as we'll see, Adam did have a problem with this command. Okay, in chapter 2, verse 18 through 25, we find that God finds something that isn't good. Let's look at it. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see where he would, what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and he will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and the wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, what we see here is that God has looked upon his creation and realized that it was not good for Adam to be alone. You know, in our day and age, we think that we all need to be married. We all need someone to call our own. I don't think that God was saying that Adam needed to have a wife per se, but he did need a companion. And because God wanted and had the um, habit of having each animal and plant reproduced after its own kind, it's not surprising that he decided that Adam needed a wife so that he could reproduce men and women. And so we see that as God creates the woman, he pulls her, takes, uh, opens Adam's chest, pulls out a rib, and creates woman from that. There are all sorts of wonderful pictures that you can interpret and, and read into this. But the, the true thing to remember is that from the beginning, he designed them to be one flesh, even to the point of pulling them from the same piece of flesh. Okay, so the word woman means out of man. So when God brings the woman to Adam and he says, Wow, this is bone of my bone. This is part of me. It's, it's deeply, intrinsically part of me. Nothing else here in the entire garden can compare to this. And so he's very happy with the family that God has given him. And even at this point, though, it's only his wife. But there will be children. In the same way that, that God looks upon companionship, we should see the importance of community, of family. And from the very beginning, since it was not good for man to be alone, it's not good for us to be alone either. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're a single and maybe not connected with a small group of some type or a church community or a church family, please consider getting finding one and getting involved because it's in our unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we grow and that we begin to share ourselves and that we begin to experience God in a much more intimate way. If you try to be the Lone Ranger Christian, I can guarantee you that you won't last very long because it's a rough world out there. And Satan will certainly uh, come knocking at your door and it's very tough to resist him without a family pr to protect you. And I, you can see so much of that, even in God's desire for man to have someone who he can share his life with. 
Okay, let's look down in that passage that began with verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2, where he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. Can you see the clues to a healthy marriage here? That the man is draws away from his family and becomes one with his wife. One of the key problems in many marriages is that the couple has not truly separated from their original family. And it's very important to realize when you start a marriage that it is you and your spouse against the world, not you, your spouse, and your mother, and his mother, and your father, and his father. Because really, the rest of the world will try to pull you apart. And parents just can't help it. They miss you being, they miss being the most important thing in your life. And so naturally, they're a little jealous of your spouse. So newlyweds, I just want to caution you on that. Okay, there's another clue here to a healthy marriage. Do you see how they were both naked, but they were not ashamed? One of the things we bring into marriage is a lot of baggage that causes us to be ashamed um, and not really want to reveal all of ourselves, all of who we are to our spouse. And God was really showing here that Adam and Eve were able to be totally honest with each other and they were not ashamed of that. In fact, there's a sweet innocence to their relationship. And I look at this and I think it's a hard thing to get to that point in a relationship. And it takes time and it takes guts. But until you're willing to be naked and vulnerable to that other person, I don't know that you truly can become one. Well, they don't exist in this state for very long because at the very beginning of chapter 3, we hear about the serpent that comes crawling along, only at this point it's not crawling because we know that that's one of the punishments of the serpent. However, it just appears in near this tree that Eve happens to be standing near. And the animal simply says to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, this is in verse 6 of chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. All right, do you see that her husband was with her? There's a big uh, movement among um, evangelicals and and various um, religions that says that this woman pretty much acted alone, but that's really not true. Her husband was with her, and he was well aware of what she was doing. And so when you see people trying to pin all of the fall upon a woman, remind them that Adam was right there and perfectly capable of stopping everything, and he did nothing. In fact, he took the fruit after the woman had eaten it. She turned around and gave it to him, and he took it and ate it too. There's no discussion, no debate, nothing. All right, so let's talk for a minute about why would Eve eat this fruit? She knew she had the serpent had just asked her, "Can you eat that fruit?" and she had just said no. She this was not an act of ignorance. Certainly was something that she knew she was not to do. But isn't it just that way with sin? It's the very thing that we think, "Well, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I'm going to do it anyway." 
what went wrong here? What, what's wrong with this picture? Let's look at the steps that Eve took in this encounter. First, what's the first thing that she did wrong? I would propose to you the first thing she did wrong was stopping to entertain thoughts of sin. She stopped and thought about the fruit and started talking to the serpent. When we are faced with temptation, we should run away. We shouldn't sit there and stop and talk and analyze and, and debate the issue. We should move away. But that takes a certain amount of awareness of what's going on. And for all we know, we'll give Eve the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps she didn't realize that the serpent was trying to trick her. She was very innocent in many ways. And yet, she knew what God had told her to do. But look what the devil does that makes it so attractive. He says, oh, you won't die. In other words, question God. Maybe God doesn't really have your best interest at heart. Then he says, here's what this fruit will do for you. It will make you like a God. In fact, you'll know the difference between good and evil. Well, up until this point, as far as we know, Eve didn't know the difference between good and evil. She'd never experienced evil. She knew all that God, all the good that God was. And so for her to stop and consider what the serpent said certainly was an act of curiosity. But then beyond that, it became an act of intrigue and it pulled her toward it. Her next step is to rationalize that perhaps it wouldn't be so bad. Perhaps that if she took a bite of that fruit, she really would be like God. And maybe that's a good thing. So it's so true that we have a tendency to say, well, the devil made me do it. And the truth is that the devil just brings the temptation. And we are certainly capable of resisting it. We just choose not to. Those of you that have your student Bibles, look back on, uh, towards the back. And in my particular Bible, it's page 1289. I know everyone is different. But for those of you that are using the student Bible, it will be somewhere in that uh, vicinity. James 1 the very first chapter of James, and it's really as toward the very back of the Bible in the New Testament. There's a little statement here that James makes about temptation, and I think it's something to keep in mind. This begins down in verse 12 of chapter 1 of James. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What we're saying here is that we have a choice. God has a good plan for us, and he has good things for us. And it is us who chooses to be dragged away and enticed and to give in to sin. And that's really where we need to nip it in the bud. And like I said at the beginning, run when you are tempted. Okay, let's look down a little bit further in Genesis 3, down to verse 9. Okay, are you back? I know it takes a minute to turn back to um, Genesis, which was back again at the beginning. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. 
And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed you are above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike at his heel. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Can you see that the very first consequence of sin is immediately God knows? I think we have a tendency to think we can sin and we can make up for it somehow. We can make a bargain with God. We can weigh our sin against the good things we do and we'll come out with an even balanced scale. But the thing is, it doesn't work that way. When God gives a command and we disobey, we are instantly condemned. And God, of course, always knows. So we see from the very beginning that Adam's initial reaction is to blame his wife. This is not at all unusual. Those of you that have kids know that as soon as one gets in trouble, the very first thing they do is blame the others. And before you know it, you have to really discern who did what who did what sometimes you know who did what and it's just a matter of making the one who did it confess well in this case God of course knew what Adam had done but he listened to Adam and he turned to the woman and said and what have you done what is this thing you've done and Eve immediately blamed the serpent well of course they both had a choice and they both blew it but it's easier to blame somebody or something else than it is to live up to our own mistakes. You might ask yourself, well, why would the serpent talk to the woman? Why didn't he just go straight to the man? And I've thought that a few times. And I think that the truth here is that it may be that the serpent approached the woman first because she was a little bit tougher to win over. I mean, the man just caved right in. Or maybe it was because she was weaker and and she maybe didn't, wasn't aware of all the consequence of what would happen if she sinned. But certainly with Adam there, he could have said, wait, no, don't do it. So, and he didn't. And the woman certainly didn't ask Adam, should we eat this? No, she just took a bite and handed it over to him. When God comes looking for Adam, you notice that he finds him hiding in the bushes. And when God says, why are you hiding? He says, well, I was naked. Isn't this just like us? We want to hide from God. We, we really don't want to face where we are, what we have done. It's easier to look the other way and pretend it will all go away. It's kind of like, like I mentioned last week, I'm a scuba diver. One of the funny things that we have noticed under the water is nurse sharks. Nurse sharks can be pretty good size, but they're really like giant catfish. And what will happen is that they will stick their head in a little crack and pretend that they're invisible. And you will swim along and you will see the back half of a nurse shark sticking out with his head buried in between a couple of rocks. Now the nurse shark thinks that you can't see him, but of course you can. And even though just his head's covered up, the rest of him is there very obvious. 
And that is exactly the way we are. We try and just bury our head and think that God won't see. But of course he does see. And he knows something's wrong because we have broken our relationship with him. Adam wasn't terribly excited to see God. And God kind of suspected, okay, something's going on here. The fact that Adam knew he was naked indicates that this fruit that they ate of did a little bit of what the serpent said it would do. It did give them a knowledge of good and evil because they had then committed evil. And so they lived at this moment in a fallen and a sinful world. They just didn't know it yet. Well, we know from reading the verse, the passage in James, that the consequences of sin is death, and that is exactly what happens here with Adam and Eve. There, but that's not the only consequence. What are the other things that you can see happened with Adam and Eve? You're probably thinking, well, there was shame, there was fear, there was uh, just an unwillingness to know and be with God, a brokenness in that relationship. That's all true, but let's look a little bit further. What are the specific punishments that God laid upon Adam and Eve? Let's continue on in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to the children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you, were, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You've heard that phrase, for ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Okay, so we see that now death has entered the world. Not just separation from God, but a physical death as well. Adam and Eve now will experience pain in childbirth, pain in their work, um, a generally unhappy life, an unhappy world. All that God created that was so beautiful has been tainted. And yes, they will find pleasure in some things, but overall it will be a sad life for them. And God has warned them of that. He will cast them out of the garden and separate them from the perfect place he created for them. But Thanks be to God that he created a savior. And so the other half of this story is that though the picture is very sad at the end of chapter 3, God is very good to provide a savior. And we can once again know and live in peace with God and in that place, that paradise that he created for us through the birth of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection which we won't get to until the New Testament. But those of you who are aware of that or who want to skip ahead, I would encourage you to do so. Okay, so we have seen in this lesson today that God had to block off the garden and, and kick man out of it. Why do you think he had to kick man out of the garden? If you look for a minute, you will see, well... Right down below that, after, in verse 20, he says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living things. And that's very true. All the living people, I guess. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So where did God get those, ad, those um, that clothing of skin? Well, of course, he had to kill some animals. And so that is where the animal sacrifice originally began. 
It is through that shedding of the blood, which we then refer to again and again, and you will see throughout the Old Testament, that was God's way of paying the penalty of covering up their sin. But it took blood to do that. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God did not want man to live forever in a broken state. And he certainly would have had he been able to get uh, and take hold of uh, some fruit from the tree of life. And so instead he banishes him from the garden and sets an angel on the uh, gate of the garden and basically says you are not allowed in here anymore. And so Adam and Eve are cast out and they go on to live their lives toiling against the very creation that God worked so hard to make just for them. What we see here is that sin causes man to be separated from God, and it spoiled everything. And even now, it separates families and destroys confidence and trust in a God who loves us. It creates scars and hardships that we end up enduring all of our lives. With Adam and Eve's original sin came death, which is the fallen state that we all live in today. But God provides a way out through Jesus. Thank God. Okay, verse 315 alludes to this Savior. It says that... The serpent's child will strike his heel, but the, the woman's ch son or s child will crush his head. Those of you that saw The Passion, I'm willing to bet most of you did, there's that scene where the serpent looks like it's going to bite Jesus' heel. That, this is a reference back to that, um, this very passage where Jesus in the garden suffers and yet he is able to crush Satan by being faithful and dying on the cross for us. Alright, let's take just a minute. We have a little side note here that I'd like to talk about. We have been introduced to another character in the heavenly realm, uh, Satan. Okay, so what does the Bible tell us about Satan? Well, those of you who have been in church for a while, you've heard that kicked around the devil or Satan or the evil one. 2 Peter 2.4 mentions that God did not spare the angels when they sinned but cast them into hell. Apparently there was some kind of a rebellion in heaven sometime between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3. Among the angels, the heavenly beings that God created to help him in his work, there arose a leader that he believed, that who believed that he was as good as God and that he was going to challenge God. And this leader of the angels was cast out of heaven and fell to earth and was has now wrecked havoc upon the earth. Uh, it's all the struggle of good and evil that we face from here on out. The book of Isaiah refers to this evil one in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. The book of Job gives us even more insight where we see this devilish being coming before God and saying, well, if you just let me attack Job's health or attack his wealth or attack his family, then he will deny you. So God, for some reason, tolerates Satan. We do not understand a lot about this. I would refer you to um, Systematic Theology by Wayne Gruden, and there are also some other books out there that uh, make the discussion about who is Satan and what is he doing out there and why does God put up with him at all when in a minute he can squish him. But God chooses to play out this heavenly drama 
of good against evil. He refers to Satan as the father of lies and the evil one. We know that Satan's power is limited by God, and eventually the Son of God, Jesus Christ, finishes his work on earth by destroying Satan. This happens in Revelations 20, 1-3. In the meantime, Satan has been allowed to prowl around and really pretty much uh, give us a run for our money, but it constantly causes us to continue to look to the Lord for protection and for help against the evil one, and it tests our faith, and, and in many ways there is a purpose for Satan. Second Peter 5.8 really talks about how dangerous it is to um, tangle with Satan. Our response should be to stay close to God and to resist the devil, really to flee from him whenever we are being tempted to just run away, as I said at the beginning. Okay, so today's lesson, we've covered the original fall. You've seen how God created marriage to work and unfortunately how Satan has wrecked it. We have seen how God created community uh, within a oneness with him and with his people and how, once again, sin entered and destroyed that. That the sacrifice that had to be made for this sin was the shedding of blood, which from here on out we'll, we will see again and again. I want to encourage you to do the homework for next week. If you have any questions on any of this, please check out the website or ask your discussion leader. For next week, we will be covering Genesis 4 through 11. Be sure and do your homework, and if at all possible, read ahead, because you will quickly find that we are covering more and more passages, and it will be tough to keep up if you do not stay with your reading as we go along. So may the Lord bless you, and I'll talk to you again next week. <music>